You go and yell at somebody in the street wearing fur, and you tell them they're mean, and they might they might like that mm. because being mean is powerful. It's being ruthless. And look at leaders.、Mm. Look at how we reward the ruthless people in our、mm. culture. If we're going to focus on something like Yulin, I don't know if each individual person like watches, you know, what's happening and then、um, celebrates that, or if it's the same kind of thing where it's a kind of romanticized idea、mm. of this cruelty as being a, a very high payoff of pleasure. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the PBN podcast. I'm your host Robbie Lockie. On this week's episode, we have the incredible and brilliant Joshua Catcher. Joshua is a fashion designer, activist, author, and educator who has taught at Parsons, the New School, and LIM College. He's also lectured internationally on sustainable and ethical fashion. Joshua started the first men's ethical lifestyle website, The Discerning Brute, in 2008. Then launched the first vegan, ethically made menswear fashion brand, Brave Gentleman, in 2010. This week's episode was really fascinating, and I. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Please don't forget to leave a review, comment, and share. It really helps get the message out. Hope you enjoy, and I'll see you next time. Hey, this is Joshua Catcher. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. It's been、uh, it's been a pleasure. We've been chatting for a few years now, so it's great to finally meet you. Yeah, I, I've been a huge fan of what you've done, and I, I I was just saying outside how I'm I'm just amazed at the quantity and quality of content that you're continually putting out there. I don't know how you do it. Thank you. Well, we've got a very dedicated and passionate and supportive team, which we couldn't do this without. So, you know, shout out to the PBN crew. Yeah, <laughs> good job, everyone. So you're here in London.、Uh, you're here with your husband. Yeah.、Um, on、uh, your book tour. Yes.、Uh, and、uh, tell us about some of the things you've been up to in the last few days. First, we flew into Paris. As soon as I landed, I had to immediately pack and go to speak at Parsons Paris, which is、um, a fashion school that I used to be a professor at in New York City, and、uh, now I just do guest lecturing. So I did a guest lecture at Parsons Paris, which is great because I get to speak to a room full of future fashion industry professionals,、mm-hmm. and they're not just a room full of vegans, and that I think is really important to be able to bring. The stuff that I'm doing to them. Then we did、um, an event at a, the vegan boutique in Paris,、um, Manifesto Eleven.、Mm-hmm. Um, such a cool, high-end, aspirational vegan fashion shop.、Mm-hmm. If you have the opportunity to to go to Paris, I highly recommend stopping by that shop. They carry a really great selection of designers, and、um, also go by. Get some patisserie at Patisserie Vegetale.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after Paris, we went to、uh, we took the train to London, and did the Veg Fest. Did some talks. Did a book launch event with the Bright Club.、Um, Laura Callan, who、uh, started Bright Zine, she has a, a really great spot,、um, the Bright Store, which also has an event space. And、um, there's just people doing so many cool things now. It seems overwhelming, and、mm. I, I just remember. When there was not like hardly anything,、mm. that leads me on to my next question, which is、uh, before we go into what you're doing with your life currently,、yeah. where did this vegan journey for you begin? How did you discover it? I think veganism was something that you know. I say I was always vegan, but I just hadn't、uh, matched up my lifestyle with my values yet. I always really identified as an animal lover, <laughs> and. I just didn't realize that this was even an option. I didn't know that you could that you could live that way. And as a teenager, 
The thing that really was the spark that started me questioning why things were the way they were um, was in, I think I was about 15 and my after school club purchased an acre of rainforest to protect it. In the 1990s, uh, the rainforest was the big issue. And it's sort of become that again, you know, 20 years, uh, oh gosh, was it 30 years later? <laughs> 30 years later. <laughs> but but we found out that the, that the rainforest that we had protected was um, either illegally clear cut for cattle grazing or somehow was illegally, you know, taken. I didn't realize that cattle were grazing in the rainforest. I was mm -hmm. a teenager. I just mm -hmm. assumed that food, my food was coming from the images that we see on the sides of a truck, mm -hmm. um, a, a very bucolic uh, rolling hills and a little red barn and bucolic—that's a, a great word. Yeah, and a, and a couple of cows, you know, speckling mm. and maybe a, a sheep here and there. Mm. And this fantasy that the advertisers spin—that is so comforting and so nostalgic mm. and and so not true. Mm. So why the why the hell was my uh, food coming from thousands of miles away and from clear-cut rainforest? Mm. That led me to question the food system and question the adults. It was the first time I realized that the adults were not making the right decisions. Mm -hmm. And it really was a, 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 sh a moment that shifted my perspective on a lot of things. My high school library had a copy of Peter Singer's Animal Liberation in it. Oh, wow. And that was pretty uh, lucky. Yeah, um, That was pretty um, just uh, random. I don't know who put it there or why, but I took, a, I, I took it out because mm -hmm. it was the only book about um, animal rights in the library, and I read it, and it it changed my life. It, it blew my mind. It, it gave me it gave me a dialect with which to speak about and a context in which to understand um, the validity of animals' perspectives mm -hmm. and the the fact that animals want to live and that they are individuals and mm -hmm. that they that they fight to live and that they do everything that they can to um, to vocalize their um, their dissent in their treatment, and we just are very good at ignoring it and mm -hmm. compartmentalizing that. Mm -hmm. Which is what Dr. Melanie Joy calls carnism. Are you familiar yeah. with her work? Yes. Um, Dr. Melanie Joy's work is amazing. And I think you can look at the fashion industry through the lens of carnism. Mm -hmm. in, in a lot of my talks, I, I discuss fashion carnism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because the, the bit that's the most interesting for me is when she talks about when you name something, you can un you can dismantle it, but until it's named, until it's been pulled out into the open from, you, know, you could say in, in, it is hidden in plain sight, but you could say it's kind of in the darkness, really, in the recesses of our mind. We don't really think about it. I grew up on a farm. I loved animals, um, but I never really thought about what I was eating. I knew they were animals, but I didn't think about them in the way that I do now, which is not that different. It's only seven, I've been vegan six and a half, seven years. Um, I'm still the same person, but this idea was planted in my mind and shifted everything within me. So yeah. at the time when you made these changes and you were reading these books, was anyone around you of influence in, in this way, who was like this, who ate in this way? Or were you kind of quite isolated? I was lucky in that my parents were pretty liberal and allowed me to really explore counterculture. Mm -hmm. I was very involved in the hardcore music scene and the punk rock music scene. And there were a lot of vegetarians and vegans mm. in that community. Yeah. And I remember suddenly realizing that, oh, all these people tabling at this hardcore show, like these are all, this is all animal rights uh, pamphlets and leaflets. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, this band is singing about um, veganism and singing about uh, animal liberation. 
attention and and being really uh, sort of aggressive about it. Mm-hmm. And that was a revelation too, because there's this association with um, veganism as being this kind of anemic regimen uh, about sacrificing pleasure and being, you know, pale and frail and weak. And I had an, an immediate sort of, you know, and, and perhaps this was um, over the top, you know, ultra masculine, ultra aggressive representation of veganism, which is not the common thing. Mm. Did you have any kind of pushback, though, at the time when you decided to move into this lifestyle? What kind of people around you were? Did you get mocked or attacked by anyone that you knew? Or did you? How did it evolve? There were there were practical concerns mm-hmm. from my my family where they were worried about nutrition and mm-hmm. they didn't my my mother just had to had to learn how to prepare my meals differently mm-hmm. and you know I don't mean to sound like I don't mean for that to sound privileged I was I was a kid so mm-hmm. my my parents were cooking for me mm-hmm. so um that was a learning process and I had to learn to cook for myself and mm-hmm. so but the pushback was uh, from from some of the people who were older around me not so much from my peers mm-hmm. I had some conversation with teachers mm-hmm. in high school but there's nothing that really jumps out as a, as a, hor- a horrific memory of so you escaped any bullying or uh, well, attacks I was bullied for, for other, other reasons, reasons. <laughs> not, not which, for... We, can, <laughs> which we, can, we can discuss yeah. later but so regarding animals um, what are some of your earliest memories of animals did you have any companions Onion pets at home, and yeah, how did you... yeah. I I grew up with cats, mm-hmm. and then a, a couple of dogs uh, as I was a teenager, and these were family members. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember kind of pointing out in my own mind this disconnect between the animals that we care so much about at home and the animals who disappear into these objects, into mm-hmm. sliced deli meat or mm-hmm. um, you know a leather jacket, and wondering why there is this disconnect. And like you were saying with Dr. Melanie Joy's work, ideology, ideology is invisible. It's hard to see unless you take a step back and look at the culture mm-hmm. and look at society from a bit of a, a distance and observer standpoint and realize that the things that we see as being quote unquote natural are choices. Mm-hmm. And these are choices that don't have to be. We mm-hmm. can choose another way. Mm, absolutely. The vegan community, like how involved did you get in the beginning? Did you go on rallies and marches? and like? Well, by the time I got to university, um, there, there hadn't been an animal rights organization. I was at Syracuse University mm-hmm. um, in upstate New York. And I think um, I, I, either, I either restarted um, uh, an animal rights group on campus, which hadn't been around for a little while, or I may have started the first. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. Mm-hmm. I started the animal rights organization there. Amazing. And, um, and I think it's still, I think it's still going. Wow. So we went to protests. We did, you know, we, we kind of lobbied the, the science department <laughs> to stop doing, um, dissection and vivisection mm-hmm. and, very not successfully we tried Mm. but you know you have a bunch of art students who Mm -hmm. get up in front of the science department and it's a bunch of you know teenagers and Mm -hmm. they're like you shouldn't do this anymore and they're just looking at you like like who the hell do you think Mm. you are Mm -hmm. it was immediately um, an intersectional approach Mm. also because Mm -hmm. we were dealing with issues of um, labor and sweatshops Mm. with our university apparel and we were dealing with issues of environmental justice within 
in the Syracuse community, um, environmental racism that was going on where the most uh, marginalized communities were getting the uh, the bus depots and the dumps and mm. the they were being exposed to the worst parts of uh, the pollution. And, mm. um, and so this all became part of of a larger move towards a better world. Mm. And I think um, this was this was between 1998 and 2002. Mm. Yeah, so the, having that at the university was, was really, I think, formative, uh, organizing, protesting. Uh, we protested McDonald's. That was, you know, there was a McDonald's nearby. We did what we could. Mm. Um, this was before I really took a look at what was effective what was the most um, strategic decisions mm. to make. And it was a lot of just, you know, raw, this is what's right. Mm -hmm. And because this is what's right, this is how it should be. Mm. And I think a lot of us can get lost in that feeling of mm. because something is right, therefore, if we put energy into it, it should have this end result, which mm. is like a, you know, the Hollywood ending. Mm. I think what I've learned is that what is correct is often not the same thing as what is effective. Mm. The way that we approach creating change and inspiring people requires the same amount of research and energy and strategy as as anything else that requires mm. strategy. Mm. Do you feel like a lot of people go into this movement or come into this movement with a need or desire to create change, do it? with kind of maybe blinkers on or a bit in a, in a naive way, not realizing that just acting from a place of emotion or raw emotion, which is often anger. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of young people come into this movement and are very angry. Yeah. Uh, we see it here in the, in the UK a lot with a lot of young activists who are very angry, very misanthropic. They're filled with rage for what is, you know, the abuse of innocent beings. And they want, they want to kind of, you know, they want the world to listen. Yeah. Have you got any kind of advice for young people who are listening who have just started this um, road of activism and, and you know, and want to kind of smash things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, find an outlet for that because I, I understand that rage and I think that rage is valid. Mm. I mean, if you think about it, every second of every day, there are individuals who are in experiencing the worst possible pain and anguish mm. that we could imagine. And this is happening nonstop. Mm. And it could paralyze us. And that anger can also paralyze us. It mm. can make us very, it can compromise our effectiveness. Mm. Putting a smile on and going and having a, a calm discussion with somebody might mm. seem mm. emotionally like the wrong thing because it isn't a response that's in parallel with the level of uh, horror that is going on. And so I understand that. Mm. And I've, I felt that too. And I think what, what I've realized is that there's a time and a place for that anger mm. and that can be used strategically. Mm. But I think more so we have to be really good at reading who our audience is and mm. who we want to reach mm. because that requires um, very specific tactics and strategy. Mm. And I think we have to approach it like a science mm. and we have to use psychology and we have to use the tools that are that are in our hands and often we have to win people over through aspiration and desire mm. and those are positives mm -hmm. we have to make the th this lifestyle mm. seem mm. desirable and aspirational and cool mm. and sexy and fun and it's a, and the party and the superior thing mm -hmm. 
In fashion, often I feel like we apologize for vegan materials. Mm -hmm. We have alternatives. Mm -hmm. We have fake stuff. Mm -hmm. We have faux stuff. And these are all diminishing terms mm -hmm. that I think devalue the real innovation that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to both talk about those things in a way that's aspirational, create new language around how do we talk about these things without harming them without mm -hmm. backing away and apologizing. We don't even realize we're doing it. Mm. So I, I think that, uh, that it, it's a challenge. And for, for the young people that are listening that are feeling that anger, like you, you are right for feeling that way. But that doesn't mean that expressing it in the way that feels good is going to be the most effective thing. Very good advice. Regarding fashion, obviously, it runs through the center of your life and everything you do and your work and your creativity. How did you get involved in it and where did it all begin? Fashion was something that I was against mm. for a very long time. I think the anti-fashion identity was very appealing uh, as this rejection of what seemed to be a representation of everything that is superficial, mm -hmm. everything that is anti-intellectual, mm -hmm. um, everything that is just about surface and vanity and, uh, and silliness, really, a waste of time. And that's how I perceived fashion. And I think that is the mainstream stereotype of what the fashion industry is mm -hmm. and what fashion people are. Yeah. I realized that I was kind of overlooking something that was incredibly influential and powerful when it comes to identity, mm -hmm. when it comes to the way we express ourselves, who we want to be, how we want to be seen. And also, it's a global industrial complex. Right. This affects Billions of animals, millions of workers, ecosystems everywhere. And it's a bit of a monster. It is. And if we don't take it seriously, if we allow ourselves to think it's just silly, mm. then we overlook those things. And in its own right, as a, as a form of design, as a form of symbolism and communication, it has a very rich history. Mm. And it's a powerful tool and it is valid. But I think you can see even how politicians deal with fashion, they, they sort of overlook um, a lot of those impacts. And then we have a real lack of meaningful legislation around um, important um, fashion issues. Mm. So I, I was very anti-fashion. And when I started my blog, The Discerning Brute, in 2008, it was at the time, I think, the first and only um, vegan lifestyle website geared towards a more masculine audience. Mm -hmm. It was a way for me to address something that I saw as a big problem, which was veganism being relegated to specifically and only the realm of kind of femme sentimentality. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to open up this conversation to people who identified um, more masculine. And I, I saw a big problem because we live in a patriarchal culture mm -hmm. that having this discourse uh, without threatening the very, very fragile and narrow definition of masculinity that so many people, you know, aspire to in this culture, <laughs> um, having a way for them to feel comfortable considering these ideas was something important. And that's sort of how the discerning brute started as a way to address the problems of masculinity mm. and looking at masculinity as a roadblock to sustainability in general mm -hmm. and to and to a more compassionate ethical world. Mm. Compassion, nurturement, caring, these are things that are not seen as masculine qualities. Why? How do we how do we change that? How do we open the door for those mainstream men or mainstream masculine people who don't want to 
express those those sorts of things. And in writing The Discerning Brute, I started writing about men's, men's fashion, menswear, and I realized that there was a real gap in the market. There were things that I wanted that didn't mm. exist. Mm-hmm. And I so that's how my brand, The uh, Brave Gentleman, eventually started. Uh, in 2010, I launched Brave Gentleman, which is, I think, the first um, men's vegan lifestyle fashion brand. And that was almost a decade ago. Wow. I can't believe that. It's been almost 10 years. And it's been over 10 years since um, since the launch of The Discerning Brute. I've seen a lot of change. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful story. And, and obviously, uh, throughout this time, you've observed um, positives and negatives of the industry. What are some of the environmental and sustainable challenges that fashion, particularly things like fast fashion, the effects are having on our world? Most of the problems associated with fashion today are issues of scale. When we think about the size of the animal herds that are required to produce the global demand for wool, for example, there's a, there's over a billion sheep on the planet, and they are intentionally bred to be here mm-hmm. for the wool industry. Mm-hmm. That's a billion mouths to feed. That's space for a billion individual beings. That is resources needed for a billion individuals. That's a huge amount of resources and energy. And then on top of that, it's uh, a mass source of methane. It is is a mass source of um, excess phosphorus and nitrogen entering aquatic systems and causing things like toxic eutrophication. It is a land grab. Often it is finding space and it's desertification and it's loss of biodiversity. And this is the wool industry. And then... That's just the wool industry. Yeah, and then you end up with uh, fiber that is a protein fiber that the world then looks at as a sustainable fiber. Mm. And that blows my mind. Mm. There is this disconnect between just because something is called quote unquote natural, it doesn't mean that it's sustainable. It doesn't mean that it is being produced in a way that w- would have existed in the wild. Um, so we have these these sheep who are genetically engineered through domestication to have too much skin uh, so that they can produce more and more wool per sheep. They have a higher yield. And then that results in these inevitable cruelties, the high concentration of animals, the uh, mule sing, uh, the, the removal of the skin from around their tails, uh, cutting it off with without anesthetics, uh, tail docking with a hot blade, p- ear puncturing, and the shearing process has been investigated over a hundred undercover investigations in different shearing facilities throughout the world, Argentina, North America, Australia, uh, China. And what we're seeing is that cruelty is inherent in shearing, in the shearing industry, which is a paid by volume, not a paid by our industry. <coughs> so these shearers are rushing and they are um, lacerating the sheep and they're cutting off ears and cutting off genitals and punching and kicking and slamming. And these animals are prey animals. They don't want to be pinned down. So they're fighting you every step of the way. If you are a shearer, your job all day long is to struggle against these sheep to get them to stay still so you can shear them. And eventually you're going to lose your temper. Mm. So cruelty is business as usual. These are inherent things to something like the wool industry, which gets a pass because it's a quote unquote natural fiber. Mm. And it goes for the rest of the industries as well. There's leather and there's fur. What else is there? Yeah. There's so but, many. I mean, I could I could go into depth into each of one into, into each one of these industries which are massive and horrible. The leather industry, I mean, 80 to 90% of the rainforest destruction is from cattle and uh, cattle grazing illegally and, and clear-cutting rainforest displacing indigenous people and the main economic 
incentive is often the leather industry, not mm. meat. Mm -hmm. Most people look at leather as a byproduct. Mm. We have to kind of flip that because leather is the highest economic value. Meat is often subsidized by governments, and and it can be it doesn't it's not always that valuable. Whereas leather has a very high price and a very high markup, and we have to see it as a co-product or a meat subsidy or the primary economic product. Then we have the fur industry. We have the exotic skins trade. We have the feather trade. We have、uh, the, the horn and bone trade for things like buttons. Every way that we can make a dollar off of、uh, every part of an animal,、um, there's there's a way to do it, and and that is the goal of the animal industries within fashion, at least, is to maximize profits and minimize costs, and that often means. Coming up with really cruel ways, really creative ways to be cruel to to maximize profits.、Mm. So often, when we see tools like a device that was designed to anally or vaginally electrocute foxes to death on fox farms, you might think, well. That is just you know a sadist must have come up with that.、Mm. That's understandable because it's 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 an exceptionally bizarre and cruel tool to have made. But then when you look at it through an economic lens, how does this make them more money?、Mm. Suddenly, it becomes clear that oh well, if you shoot them, it creates a hole in the pelt. If you cut their throats, it creates a, a slash in the pelt in、mm. a place that you don't want a slash.、Mm. And so if you electrocute them from the inside, it doesn't damage the pelt. And this is. The best way to make a profit on each pelt that have the highest value per pelt. You can look at the same thing in the in the snakeskin industry, where、um, the way the way to maximize profits in in snakeskin is to get the most skin out of each snake. And the way that they do that is they stretch the snakes out through inflating them,、mm. so they're inflated to death. They are killed with an air compressor or a water hose, and they tie off the nose, and they tie they tie off the face, and they tie off the the rear end,、mm. and then the snake just slowly either suffocates or drowns to death. It's incredible. And the thing that's so striking to me is that because these are things that are considered standard industry practices, business as usual, they are banal. They are the the commonplace thing. They're ordinary. Yet. You never see anything like this used in fashion advertising, in fashion marketing.、Mm. It's sort of acknowledged that these are things that should be hidden, even though they are integral to、mm. production of animal-based materials in fashion.、Mm. It's incredible. I mean, touching on the fur for a bit, this is one of the most kind of hotly discussed animal products used in fashion. Yeah, it kind of went away, you know, in the eighties. With all, was it the eighties? With a,、um, I'd rather be naked than wear fur. Was it the eighties? That was the late eighties through mid nineties. Yeah,、mm -hmm. so there was a lot of campaigning and a lot of people challenging the use of fur in fashion. Yeah, but then it all seemed to come back again with full force. Why is that, and how did that happen? Well, the the fur industry smartened up, and they they had they're highly funded, and they looked at our tactics, and they looked at what we were saying as activists, and they said, oh, well, we know a way around that. Mm. It was partially a, a, just a lack of resources through, from the activism side,、mm -hmm. but it was also a、oh, an underestimation of the sophistication of the fashion media industrial complex,、mm. and I think a naive sort of、um, hope that just because something is mean、mm. and we expose it, it's、mm. going to go away.、Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people just don't care, do they? A lot of people don't care, but also the most counterintuitive thing that I've discovered is in the luxury fashion market. And there's a chapter of, in my book about this. Sometimes being cruel is desirable.、Mm. 
and when you when you look at the top tier of the luxury market, whether it's in fashion or in cuisine, sometimes the cruelest things are also the most most sought after things. Mm-hmm. In cuisine, think of things like uh, foie gras and veal and ortolan and like eating live animals. Um, uh, these are things that are seen as the most expensive, the highest quality, and and sometimes the level of cruelty is understood in equivalence to the payoff that you'll get in pleasure. So the crueler something is, the more the more pleasurable the, the end product is perceived to be. Look at the Yulin Dog Festival. That's a prime example of that. It's actually believed by the people that go and dine on the dog flesh at the festival that the more pain the animals suffer, the better the taste of the meat. Yeah, and it, and it isn't limited to, I think there's a lot of attention that's placed on what's going on in Asia as extremely cruel. And I, and I understand, yes, th- those are things that are extremely cruel and, and we should do something about it. But it isn't just that area of no. the world. I mean, yeah. We have those things here too. Right now in New York City, where the city council is about to vote on a foie gras ban. And foie gras is similar. It's like, but, but, but do people intrinsically... So the people, there are obviously always people who know exactly what goes into these yeah. products and they don't care. They just consume them anyway. Because right. for the money, they're probably dead inside. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think a lot of people just don't know what goes into these products. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. The difference between consciously knowing that something is cruel and yeah. eating it anywhere and or being oblivious like with meat eating. Yeah. You know that something died for your steak, but you really are not that aware of the cruelty that yeah. was involved. Do you think that people are just blissfully unaware or they just don't want to know? Well, I think that the majority of people really buy into the mythologies that the marketers Mm -hmm. and the advertisers sell them. And everybody likes to think that these things are coming from a happy little little farm Mm -hmm. where an animal leads a great life and then one dark day, you know, they have to die for the purpose that they were put here for. But there is a segment of the population that does celebrate villainry. Mm -hmm. And this is an area of psychology that I explore in my book where it isn't understanding the real cruelty. It isn't looking at a video of foxes being electrocuted to death and skinned that they like, but what they like is an abstract, romanticized idea of evil. Mm. And that is a form of power. Mm-hmm. Think about Hollywood villains. Mm-hmm. Think about villains in films where they are shadowy and they are sexy and they're dangerous and they're powerful and they don't have to have any reason for having that power. Whereas being a hero being the good guy, that requires knowledge and consistency and values, and that's work. That's a path to power that is difficult, whereas an evil path to power is easy. It doesn't require any justification. You can be you can be bonkers and uh, you know and still and still obtain power. So we can look at this romanticization of evil aesthetics in fashion as uh, just a, an, e- an easy way to communicate power. So mm. I would say the luxury consumer who goes out and buys fur, they know. They know it's cruel. Maybe they're not really knowing the the actual incidents of cruelty that are happening looking at the documentation, but they get off on thinking that they are being tr- naughty, transgressive, sinful. Like mm-hmm. you go and going you, against the grain. Yeah, you go and yell at somebody in the street wearing fur and you tell them they're mean and they might they might like that mm. because being mean is powerful. It's being ruthless. And look at leaders. Mm. Look at how we reward the ruthless people in our mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. The the politicians, the, you know, we sort of almost celebrate them. Yeah, we we celebrate ruthlessness because 
uh, because of the power that it that it grants. And if we if we're going to focus on something like Yulin, may, I don't know if each individual person like watches you know what's happening and then um, celebrates that, or if it's the same kind of thing where it's a kind of romanticized idea mm-hmm. of this cruelty as being a, a very high payoff of pleasure. Mm-hmm. But it isn't limited, I think, to just that part of the world. Mm. So moving on a bit uh, to talk about your book, yeah, um, Fashion Animals. How how did this book? Where did it come from, and where did you get the idea? <laughs> Fashion Animals was written while I was teaching at Parsons, which is part of the New School in New York. Parsons is one of the top fashion schools in the world, and it was about a five-year project. What I realized was nobody had written seriously about animals in fashion. Fashion isn't taken very seriously, as I spoke about earlier, and animals aren't taken very seriously. Um, they're both seen as these kind of fringe uh, things that, so the intersection of both of those topics is understandably underrepresented. Mm-hmm. So this is the first book ever written about animals in the fashion industry, uh, specifically. There's been a couple of articles and essays, obviously. I wanted to do a deep dive and an, and an overview of this topic so that there's a source of materials that can be used as a textbook that can be uh, drawn from for further research. My hope with this book is that people will do further research, that this is a springboard. And I would love to have any of the individual topics that I touch on in the book really gone in much more deeply. There were so many things I wanted to include that I didn't. It's already 300 pages and it's a coffee table style book and it's (laughs) full of full color images, archival images. And this book was designed to appeal to creative professionals. So the people who want to be, who I want to reach will actually be attracted to it. What are some of the key topics that you raise in the book? I look at everything from the animals that have been driven to extinction because of fashion trends, the history of cruelty-free fashion, which actually dates back as far as I've seen in in a post-industrial world, the pursuit of specifically cruelty-free fashion dates back to the late 1800s, early 1900s London. There's advertisements for stores here in London Mm -hmm. um, in the book that are selling vegan footwear in like 1905 and selling faux fur at the same time. Mm. At the time, it was called humanitarian fashion or um, hygienic fashion. They didn't have, they didn't call it vegan fashion, Mm -hmm. but it was the same idea. It was about removing animals from the production process. Mm. And most of these people were vegetarians for moral reasons. Mm. And other topics that we cover in the book are the future of fashion. Mm -hmm. What, what are the most exciting innovations that are happening? What does the future of material technology look like? What are we going to be able to work with and what, what are we going to see in the market in the next uh, 10 to 20 years? Speaking of solutions, what are some of the exciting innovations in replacements? Let's not say alternatives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The future materials. Upgrades. Yeah, upgrade, superior materials are going to be, um, I, th- I, I, you know, the term that I've developed for this entire area of innovation is called circumfaunal materials, mm-hmm. a way around using animals. Mm-hmm. The, Circum? Circumfaunal. Right. Yeah. So, Circum from around and faunal as an animal. Yeah, right. so a way around animal materials. Circumfaunal materials are really based in, and I'm most excited about uh, the biology that's behind a lot of these innovations. I think we're going to see such exciting things done with algae, mm-hmm. with mycelium, mm-hmm. with mushrooms. We're going to see a lot of advancements in biofabrication, the ability to synthesize and grow protein fibers. I have a type growing growing wool and growing leather and things like that. Yes. In I, a lab. Yeah. 
I have a I have a tie at home that's made from silk. Mm-hmm. It is silk that was grown in the laboratory with no silkworm and no spider involved in the process. Wow. It's the the brand Bolt Threads, mm-hmm. and they also uh, have developed a product called Milo, which is mushroom leather. Stella McCartney did a museum piece using their their leather and their and their silk mm-hmm. uh, to kind of show what's possible with some of these new materials. And I think that that offers a lot of promise and a lot of excitement. I mean, imagine in the future being able to design uh, a piece of material that is a protein fiber and therefore it's biodegradable. And it is a piece of a piece of leather, for example, that can be as as thick as you want, in any texture you want, mm. as uh, in any shape, and you can infuse it with fragrance. You can. There's just an endless for, from a design standpoint, as a design outcome, this area is far superior, and that's why I'm so excited about it because it isn't just an alternative; mm. it is superior design. Mm. And I think today. The definition of good design has to change because when we look at how things are made, that has to factor into whether or not it's good design. If something, if a beautiful object is made in an awful way, in a horrible, cruel way, we can't look at that as a beautiful thing anymore. Mm. We know too much. We live in the age of transparency. We have no excuse. The handsomeness of an object should be in parallel to the handsomeness of how it was made. When it comes to alternatives, or not alternatives, or replacements, as we said, um, it also feeds into food as well. Yeah, There is a lot of hesitation when it comes to these products because people are implying that they're not necessarily as environmentally friendly. Um, I think I think it was in New York, the fur industry put a giant sign in, in Times Square. Yeah, it was, it was in Times Square. <laughs> saying, pointing the finger at vegan, alterna- vegan alternatives. You see, it's so, so, built, so built into the language. Right. Uh, I do it all the time. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I correct people, and then uh, yeah. two sentences later, I say I do it. Yeah, yeah. so the... the uh, the vegan leathers and products um, have often been accused as not being environmentally friendly, especially if they're made of PET and plastics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Do you think these are just going to be temporary until we are able to grow our own natural fibers and, and materials? Or do you think we need a better way to manage them? Like some people, for example, use these bags to wash their their artificial fibered clothes to stop yeah. the microfibers going into the water. Mm-hmm. What so what solutions are out there? I have a lot to say about this yeah. because um, I don't. Um, so stop me if I if yeah. I go on too much. But you know, first and foremost, a synthetic fur outperforms um, most real fur from an environmental standpoint. Period. Even if it's the most conventional synthetic fiber. Mm-hmm. So when and you say outperforms, in what sense? It, it has a smaller ecological impact. Right. It has a smaller footprint. Yeah. Um, I think that. The mainstream has fallen in love with a concern for microfiber plastic Mm. pollution. But when we look at actual data, when we look at what's coming out of even inside the fashion industry, we have some very, very usable data coming from the Copenhagen Fashion Summit's Pulse of the Fashion Industry Report, which was done by uh, in collaboration with the Boston Consulting Group, one of the most re- uh, reputable firms. And we have data coming from Caring, which is a luxury conglomerate that owns many uh, fashion lines, and their own environmental profit and loss report. Both of these show that by far, leather is the single worst material for the environment, by far, not even close mm. to some of the other materials. So yes, plastic is a problem, and I agree. We have to do something about it, and I think we are doing something about it. But we need to be freaking out and panicking in the exact same way that we're panicking about plastic, about leather. Mm. And people aren't talking about it in the same way. Leather is 
a crisis. It is the worst material for the environment. Why are we not hearing about this? Why is it not getting out there? Because it's easy to hate plastic. Mm. Plastic is cheap and plentiful and there isn't legacy associated with it and there aren't these heritage brands associated with mm. it. Plastic is hateable. Leather is protected. It's a symbol. It's a symbol of status and it's a symbol of, you know, the, the leather industry has put a lot of money into owning terms like genuine, mm. real, authentic. Mm. And these reflect on our ego whereas plastic is it's seen fake as fake and yeah and unnatural and it's more it's much more of an emotional problem than it is a, a rational problem mm -hmm. so leather needs to be addressed and plastic too and let's talk about faux fur because we have some really exciting developments that are happening there's a company called ecopel in paris and they are making faux fur from uh, coconut oil mm -hmm. and corn and recycled bottles that is an even further improvement upon the most high-tech synthetic furs that already exist, that already outperform uh, standard fur. So what I recommend to a lot of anti-fur activists is, you know, I, I, love, I love your passion and I really, I'm inspired when I see a, <laughs> an anti-fur protest because I'm like, wow, those people, you know, I've been part of some, of some of those protests and they are, you know, they're awesome. Get some of this data so that when you're having conversations with people, it isn't just, it, it should just be how horrible it is. But unfortunately, we also have to have other forms of information to back it up. Mm -hmm. So there is data out there that supports this idea mm -hmm. in areas other than just ethics. Mm -hmm. And we need to be armed with as, as many angles as we can in order to combat this industry because we can win this. Mm -hmm. We're about to win this. Mm -hmm. The fur industry is going down. Mm. The entire state of California just banned fur. Mm. Countries all throughout Europe are banning fur farming. It's really happening from a legislative standpoint, from a consumer standpoint. Look at just a few days ago, Macy's and Bloomingdale's in the United States, two of the uh, most respected department stores, 900 locations. They all had fur salons and they, the entire company just went fur free. So is this because the message is getting through to the people in power? So these videos and these stories are finally getting to people. Is, is this happening or is it, is it been a long road and it's now finally starting to, <laughs> I, I want to say yes. You know, I, I, I think that yes, a lot of these conversations played a role over time and these protests had, you know, yes, it was part of it, but I think, the thing that really th pushed it over the edge was a combination of things. It was the ongoing pressure from activists and from organizations in combination with developments in material innovation, mm -hmm. in affordability, and in just uh, people aren't really buying fur anymore mm -hmm. too much. So the fur industry is having is losing a lot of uh, jobs and a lot of money, and they're having to shift to other markets in the world and exploit new uh, new middle classes as they rise in in other parts of the world. I think we're really going to see the end of the fur industry in our lifetime. I certainly hope so. Regarding kind of the industry and being in the world that you are, anyone who might be listening who's involved in fashion who wants to take the leap and quit their job and do their own thing. Mm -hmm. What's your advice to people who want to do this but are really terrified of making that leap? <laughs> it is terrifying, and it continues to be terrifying. Being an entrepreneur, it seems exciting when you're envisioning the dream scenario in your head. What I would say to anybody who wants to start a fashion business is you have to love every aspect of this industry because 
designing becomes what you do 10% of the time. 90% of your time is emailing okay. and management and, you know, you. the other side <laughs> of the business that that isn't so sexy and fun. The, my other piece of advice is ideas get big really quick. And I think it's really important to stay narrow and stay focused and be, be a specialist, be an expert in one thing, in one area. Like if you want to start a fashion brand, it should have a narrow focus, a concept, or it should be one product that you do really, really good. When I started Brave Gentleman, I made I made expensive mistakes. I tried to spread myself too thin, too quick into many too into too many product categories, and then I almost went out of business because of it. I had to kind of narrow it back down mm -hmm. to f a focus on what was our best selling stuff, which was footwear mm -hmm. and suits, and so now that's all we do. Because it just, it didn't make sense to do so many other things. and Jack yeah. of all trades, master of none, right? Yeah, and jack of all trades also, you know, can kill you. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I feel that. I mean, if you have the resources and Absolutely. you have the connections and you mm. have the staff, then by all means expand. Mm. But if you're just one person and you're trying to start out, mm. you will put yourself out of business if, you, if your vision is too, if, if it's too wide. In the vegan community, I don't know what it's like in the US, but here in the UK, everyone, every Tom, Dick and Lucy wants to have a vegan fashion line. Mm -hmm. uh, and they take some designs and they slap them on a pre-made t-shirt. Yeah. Again, that's kind of fast fashion in a way, isn't it? You're, you're getting a pre-made piece of clothing and you're sticking a, a piece of design on it and then selling it off and making a very probably very small margin we're just sort of perpetuating a problem that already exists because really do we need more vegan t-shirts with the word vegan on them uh, you know i <laughs> hear here okay i'm shifting over to my you know to my fashion my fashion professional fashion professor self and i'm going to say that we don't need more t-shirt companies mm. we don't and I know that a lot of the people out there who are doing it like might not like to hear that and might be angry at me for saying that. Mm. Your work is important and, mm. and the message is important, um, but maybe there's a better way. Maybe Or, or if you're going to do T-shirts, um, focus on using recycled mm. or upcycled T-shirts mm. or upcycled cotton or you know, make sure it's all organic. Um, there's just so much. There's just such an excess of clothing. I, I know of companies who do like, you know, They'll buy vintage T-shirts and then print on the on the inside. Mm -hmm. They'll flip it inside out. Yeah, Viva La Vegan here in the UK. I don't know if you've heard of them. They do that. So oh, they cool. take old clothes and yeah. actually take them apart and re-put them back together in different ways. Yeah. And I'll also say, you know, I'll also go a step further in making people angry at me and say that, a, you know, if it's just a T-shirt company, it's not a fashion brand. Mm. It's a T-shirt company. Mm. Uh, fashion, fashion is... It's about uh, a lifestyle, a full, uh, you know, a full range of things. And uh, if, if you're, if you are narrowly focused, then yes, you might be under the fashion umbrella, but it's, you know, a t-shirt company is a t-shirt company. And uh, yeah, anyway. Well, it, we'll take it into fashion. So adding, customizing them each, each one and if you're, adding if, embellishments. And it, yeah, if you're actually sewing the t-shirts yourself, mm -hmm. if you're sourcing you know, if you're sourcing the materials and you're hiring the contracting the factory workers and you are the t-shirt is not a stock t-shirt that you're just putting a a logo onto that would be more in the realm of fashion or a, a company that is putting together an entire an entire concept of uh, a lifestyle, a, w a way of being, a, a way of um, a way of understanding and interacting in the world mm. that it can't just be. Uh, it can't just be a stock T-shirt with uh, mm -hmm. with a graphic put on it, which you know 
that there is there is an important history of t-shirts of logo t-shirts and band t-shirts and you know in the 90s I merch, would, uh, as we call them yeah merch yeah. Uh, and and that comes from I understand where that's coming from it's uh, when I would go to concerts as as a teenager I would buy a t-shirt for the band that I liked and I would represent that mm. and that was that had to do with my so identity brand advocacy rather yeah. than fashion really yeah. so I'm not telling the t-shirt companies that exist to stop I'm just saying maybe think of creative ways to um, to minimize impact, to minimize waste, to not use conventional cotton, to not use t-shirts that are sourced in sweatshop conditions, to maximize as much of the ethical manufacturing process as possible, and to use that as uh, as leverage. Educate and inform. Moving on to food, um, you're involved in an interesting uh, project with cheese, vegan cheese. Yeah. Tell yeah. us about that. I absolutely love the look of it. It looks Thanks. incredible. I uh, wish I could have brought some, but it would have been confiscated at customs. <laughs> yeah, so Rind, which is um, a cheese company that uh, I co-founded, my business partner, Dina Desenso, she... Um, owns a vegan tattoo shop in New York called Gristle Tattoo. So if you're in New- if you're in New York City and you want um, a vegan tattoo, did she do your um, tattoos? I had my tattoos long before right. I met her, but in my future ones will be done there. Yeah. Gristle Tattoo. They do really cool art shows. They feature artists, um, and they do uh, they have visiting tattoo artists from all over the world. And it's in Williamsburg. And she also is um, a vegan nurse practitioner and has a clinic. So you can go to a health wow. clinic and be seen by, you know, a vegan, uh, a vegan medical professional, which is really nice. Um, so we're both serial entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started this cheese company because we're huge fans of French-style cheese. And we didn't feel that uh, there was enough, uh, there wasn't good enough vegan cheese out there. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was kind of the sliced cheese, the cheese. You know, pizza topping cheese, yeah. which is fun and good and yummy and fine. But it's not necessarily the kind of cheese you want to eat by itself mm. with a glass of wine or with some figs. And Rind really is, I think, the best vegan cheese in the world. It's and a blue cheese, right? We do a blue, we do a cam, mm. and we do a cam blue combo. How do you get it to look like that? Is it just... It's real mold. It is real mold. Wow. Yeah, we're so inoculating. Get, we're so you inoculating get that tangy kind of tanginess that you get it's i i think it's more of um, a bloominess mm. it's like um it's it's a taste that we're so unfamiliar with <laughs> as vegans if you've been a vegan a long time mm. uh you forget that there's this flavor out there mm. um but when the you bl- say bloom describe bloom bloominess is kind of uh it's somewhere between an umami mm-hmm. and and a funk it's kind of a good funk. What's it, so what's an umami first for people who might not know? Umami is like a satisfying protein taste mm-hmm. that, is, that that really um, activates uh, the pleasure like center of your brain. A... Like MSG is right. umami. That's okay. like that's what it was made for. Right, okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's what it's the satisfaction you get from eating something that's very heavily mm-hmm. protein based. Okay, um, it's very associated with animal foods, right? Steaks and, and things. Yeah. yeah. So the cheese, um, it took about three years to perfect it. Mm -hmm. The tastings that we've done with non-vegans, with some of the top chefs in New York City who couldn't give a crap about veganism, Mm. they love it Mm. and they want it. And our biggest struggle right now is figuring out (laughs) how to scale. Because it's a slow process, right? It is a hands, it's an old world cheese making method. Mm. It's very hands on. Each wheel is, you know, cared for and and touched frequently and with gloves, don't worry. Mm -hmm. And uh, it goes through a process that takes weeks. 
how many weeks from the begin from the beginning to the end? Well, I I, I don't want to give too much away, okay. but most of our, <laughs> most of uh, I think we do different things for different versions. Mm-hmm. We've had some cheeses that we've aged for over a year. Wow. Okay. We have um, our most common one is about three weeks. Okay. But really, depending on the temperature and the humidity and mm-hmm. the conditions mm-hmm. and the aging time, you end up with all different results. Mm-hmm. And um, and knowing how to control the right things and you know allow other things, it's really it really is what it's chemistry. It's a dark art, like a Who's the people that turn lead to alchemy. gold? Alchemy. Alchemy. It is. It. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is an alchemy. Vegan and alchemy. It is. It does feel magical when mm. you when you put something in that tastes one way, and then three weeks later you get something else that is just completely different. Mm. It does feel magical, mm. and I am I am addicted to this cheese. It's so good. What is the base? A cashew or? Um, well, it's a proprietary blend okay. of uh, of plant based creams and milks, Amazing. and um, we we created the perfect balance mm. that was the right. Mm. Um, home for these microorganisms mm. that love to make delicious flavors that we like, right, and yeah. we do it. We inoculate it with real mold. It, this isn't same blue- mold as you would put a normal cheese. Or this yeah. is French, yeah. Right. But but f- but finding a non-dairy uh, origin mm. is what we're really proud of. Mm. Um, a lot of I, I I don't know what the other now it seems like there's a lot of vegan camembert companies like popping up everywhere. Mm. We started this you know a few years ago, and I think we were the first mm. in the United States. To uh, to do it, there's so many of these new cam uh, vegan camembert varieties popping up everywhere, and it's great to see. But yeah, we're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to come to New York and try it. Coming to the end now. Before um, I let you go, how can everyone find you? People can reach out to me on Instagram uh, at at the discerning brute or at brave underscore gentleman. You can send me a message, uh, leave a comment. I usually try to respond to everything. Uh, Also, um, you can get my book on Amazon. You can get it through Vegan Publishers, uh, which is our publisher, Vegan Publishers. Uh, They also have a website. Please reach out. I, I, I I love meeting new people and um, yeah, I, I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't piss off too many, too many t-shirt <laughs> makers. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sure you didn't. That. It was great to have you. <laughs> and one more question before you yeah. go and before you leave the PBN podcast bunker: um, If you were trapped on a desert island and it's just you and a pig, <laughs> obviously you're a vegan. You're not going to eat the pig. The pig is your friend. And I gave you one vegan dish, one book, and one music album. What would you take with you? Wow. Oh, I wish I would have gotten this question beforehand. <laughs> if I had, okay, one dish uh, would probably be, oh gosh, I'm going to sound like such a loser with this. I mean, I think the thing that I could eat the most and not get sick of it um, would be steamed broccoli with uh, nutritional yeast on it. Mm. Just very basic. Good choice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's really boring. I should say, no, rind, a wheel of rind cheese. Mm. Um, I, I would get gout. Um, <laughs> then the, the book, it would have to be, um, <laughs> is this meant, is this meant to stump people? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so I have a book and a musical album mm-hmm. that I need? Yeah, one book called Music uh, Album. Oh, God. Um, okay. So, um, the book would be, um, a blank sketchbook mm-hmm. so that I could... May, uh, occupy my time with making drawings and, and jotting things down, and the and the musical album would um, would probably be mm, oh gosh 
<laughs> I can tell you are creative and decisive. Is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is like painful for me. I'm like thinking of all the albums. Like, what do I listen the most to? Who am what I going to be? absolutely love? Who am I going to be never get tired of? For? I would probably take like... Um, Could be an anthology of all their music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I can answer this. <laughs> This is the impossible. Spotify, you've, you'll take you've a, you'll, me. T- you'll take Spotify and you'll have all the music <laughs> with a satellite I, link. I, I wish I had a more creative answer. This is probably painfully boring for, for the listeners. Not at all. So, not at all. Do you listen yeah. to a lot of music? So you, I do. Yeah. I constantly listen yeah. to music. So I think maybe that's why it's hard for me to decide. Mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of emotional attachments mm-hmm. to different things. So mm-hmm. settling on one. I'm thing. I'm also not very good at favorites either. People <gasps> people have asked me this this yeah. these three questions, and I also struggle as well because I don't really do favorites. I love yeah. variety and I love things to change all the time and I don't really get stuck on one thing yeah the thing I listen to most commonly mm-hmm. on Spotify is mm-hmm. like the, the discover new mm-hmm. um, new music the, the, they, they kind of the algorithm puts together mm-hmm. like artists that you might like mm-hmm. and so I'm constantly right. trying to listen to new things right. so it's hard to you're taking inter- interdimensionals uh, CD which which imported <laughs> music instantly yeah, yeah. from the so future that was a way of evading <laughs> evading your very specific question <laughs> You will not pigeonhole me. <laughs> Mr. Joshua Catcher, thank you for joining us thank on the PBN so Podcast. Much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie. This is the PBN Podcast. I'll be back next week with more fashion, veganism, health, nutrition, animals, and everything else in between. <laughs>